So I want you to invite you now, if you will, to join me in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Uh, we're going to pick up where we have left off. For the last several weeks, we've been walking through a book of the Bible as is our custom. We hope that by doing this, we kind of we, we functionally give the Bible the authority that we believe that it has. It's one thing to say that we trust and believe the Bible. It's another thing to let it dictate the terms. And so it's our custom to, to open the Bible and walk through books of it such that the next week when we get together, we're like, well, well what are we going to talk about this week? And it's like, whatever's next in the Bible. And we, we want to hopefully use that as a way to protect one another. That protects you from me getting up here from week to week and just like talking to you about my own hobby horses and things that, that I'm really excited about at that time. It protects you from our own opinions, and it protects uh, you from this in the sense that we just open the Bible and we let it speak, and this is our custom. Sometimes we deviate that for, from that for, for small uh, points of time, but we've been doing this in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll open to chapter 10. So if you don't have a Bible, we want you to participate in this. This is a, this is the, a, a tangible way in which you don't just sit there and be entertained by someone up here, uh, but instead we participate in this. We let the Bible begin to shape us. So if you don't have one, we wanted to give you one, and one of our ushers would be happy to give you one. So if you don't have one and would like one, just raise your hand and hold it there. Um, our ushers are kind of wander around here, and they will, they will be happy to give you a Bible if you don't have access to one on a smartphone. Um, this is, uh, for us, a, again, a very tangible way in which we don't don't just kind of sit there and like allow someone else to be the expert on a book that we've never actually read for ourselves. But I want to warn you, something amazing happens. I try to say this, and even then it becomes shocking when it happens. When we open the Bible, it begins to open us. And we begin to expose what's in it. The Bible begins to expose what is in us. And so even though I invite you to open the Bible with us as we read through it and let it speak to and shape us, I, and I always feel like I need to rewarn you this will mess with you. The thing you are currently finding your identity in, the thing that you currently worship more than anything else, this book will mess with you. And it wants to rob you of that thing. So especially for the book of Ecclesiastes, as we've seen, this is a reflection of a king by the name of Solomon, a, a descendant of a great king in the Bible who, who gets the, the, a lot of press in the stories of the Old Testament by the name of David. And his son, Solomon, became, becomes the most wealthy, the most powerful, the most intelligent, the most influential, the wisest person in the whole world. The way I, I said this to you, um, a certain author put it this way, it's like if you took like Hugh Hefner, uh, if you took like, uh, like Stephen Hawking, and then like the Pope, the king, and the president, and put them all into one guy, that's, that's this guy. There's no one who has had more influence, power, and wealth and, uh, across so many different spectrums of the culture than this one person, such that when he reflects on the, at, presumably probably at the end of his life, this collection of wisdom that he, that he has reflected on and left for us in the book of Ecclesiastes is, is like a rumination. And, and in the end, it's kind of a sobering reminder that a man got every single thing that he wanted. Every wish that he had came true and still at the end of it, even though he sought satisfaction and he wanted meaning and he wanted identity and he wanted contentment and all of these things, he says that it was all futile. It was vanity. And life under the sun, life trying to find joy under the sun apart from God, trying to find meaning apart from God is like chasing the wind. It's impossible. And this is the wisdom we gain from a man who got everything he wanted and came to find that that thing did not, none of those things that he wanted ever satisfied him. And so the reflection we've seen is that we gain wisdom now. Now that we know that we in our own cannot find contentment apart from God, then, then we ourselves begin to 
find it in God. And, and actually the despair that you might find when, when the Bible or, or when, when God speaks and says something that you don't like and that, that hurt, that, that sense of offense that you have, like, well, I know better than this, is a temporary one. But I want to be unashamed in the way I invite you into that sorrow. I want to invite you into the kind of sorrow that you find when you look for meaning apart from the finished work of God in Jesus Christ. So we want to pick up where we left off as he's reflecting now since chapter 7. Don't be afraid of the table of contents to find Ecclesiastes. But we're going to pick up in, about the, in, in verse uh, 5 of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. He's started a new chapter or new section here of just a, a collection of Proverbs that, that look like principles for us and we'll walk through them. Hopefully we can find some wisdom in them. Beginning in verse 5 of chapter 10. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. And he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, then there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. My hope is that as we contemplate life under the sun, even if we consider that it might be meaningless, we gain wisdom. And that kind of godly wisdom points to something else. So the way that we've been walking through this last half of the book of Ecclesiastes, the reflections of a rich man who got everything he wanted and still found life to be futile, we find that godly wisdom is to live in such a way in this life under the sun that points to and testifies to a reality that is beyond the sun. That even as we search for identity and meaning and those ultimately do not satisfy the dissatisfaction that comes from them ought to lead us to a kind of wisdom that points to a greater gladness and joy that God grants to us from beyond the sun.
So here's what I think we find in this chapter, in this collection of of Proverbs, this collection of wisdom, some of the things may be disconnected, but here's where we're ultimately going to land. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 1.30, who became to us the wisdom from God, wisdom in this fallen world under the sun is of supreme value. Since we know that the greatest wisdom demonstrated to us was the wisdom of God to see our greatest need and send His Son to save and redeem and take our place for His glory and our joy, then everything we do after that is a reflection of that kind of wisdom. Since we know that the greatest wisdom, wisdom we saw last week, that that confounds the wisdom of the world. It seems silly, right? The next couple of weeks we'll reflect on this. Wait, there was a guy and he was dead and then he's not dead anymore? That sounds ridiculous. That sounds like foolishness. And to anybody who has watched the world for any period of time, people who die stay dead. That's it. And so for us to come along and say that there was one who came, and by what God accomplished in him confounds the wisdom and understanding of the world, we find ourselves transformed. We're thinking in a whole new category. And to even consider the possibility that this one Jesus might have done this for us to demonstrate godly wisdom to us is the possibility to experience new life. To be, as he speaks, to be bo- like being born again. Like having a whole new life to start over. This is the kind of wisdom we seek. The wisdom we find finally for us in Jesus. And the principles that are outlined for the rest of this chapter, I think, at the very least, begin to like whet our appetite for that kind of godly wisdom. Or then maybe point us toward the kind of foolishness that we currently live in. So here's where I want to begin as humbly as I can with a word of gratitude. I, I am so grateful to each of you for the grace you've shown me as we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I, when I first, uh, man, here's, here's why, I think I told you this, um, I, I get to know so many of you, and so many of you are on your way to somewhere else. Maybe not geographically, but you're not there yet. And you're in this place where you're like, once I do that thing, once this is fixed, then I'll be there. And, and it seems like if I'm going to be a, a decent pastor at all, I'm going to point you to the way that the scripture says, no, you won't. And when you get that thing, you might be more full of sorrow and discontentment than you had before you even wished you had it. And that's the lesson that Solomon gives to us. Now, that's that's weird because that takes us through a very sobering and very kind of depressing book, right? Uh, You'd like for the time that we spend together on a Sunday to be a little bit more upbeat, right? Some of you, you invite your friend, you're like, finally invited my friend to come hang out here, and you're over here telling him that life is meaningless. I know, I apologize for that. Uh, but, I, but I also, I have loved your grace in this. The encouragement that you guys have, have shared with me in this has, been, has just been impressive. And so I'm humbled by this. I love the opportunity I get to humbly speak about this. Uh, and that leads to a, a couple different things. It, so much so even that like the grace that is shown here has uh, even been shown by my daughters. And so uh, the word here that's, that's compared to a wise person is the word of a fool. Um, but that isn't a word we use often. In fact, the only time we use that word, I would argue, was yesterday, April Fools, a holiday for fools, people who like to lie and deceive people because that's what they wish they could do the rest of the year. Congratulations. You are this April's fool, right? I don't like the holiday. It's not that good. 
Hey, you won the lottery. Ha <laughs> ha, you didn't. What? No, that's not how this works. So we don't use that word. And so I've tried to kind of like translate as best I could. The most modern use of that word is like, uh, I don't know, like idiot or moron or stupid. And so I was, as, as is my custom on Monday, I typically listen to sermon audio. It's kind of painful to listen to yourself and like critique like that sounded, that sounded awful. That was stupid. You just, that's not a word, right? And I'm, I'm doing this. <laughs> And then, and then my daughters are hearing me say the words idiot and stupid over and over again. And of course, they're like, Daddy, that's a bad word. And so even the grace that my daughters have shown has been pretty amazing because we, we don't use those words. Hopefully, I, I want to, as, gracious you, as graciously as you will allow me, I want to use these kinds of words strategically, not flippantly or irresponsibly. But again, I don't think we use the word fool except on a holiday that that's for you. Don't lie to people. Don't lie. You're not pregnant. Stop it. You're not, that's not funny, okay? Just don't do it. And so they, we're invited to think about life in one of two categories. The category of a wise person or the category of, with all due respect, not that that excuses anything, the category of a wise person or the category of a fool, an idiot, a stupid person. And this is what we're given a picture of here. Now, up to this point, especially in this chapter, we've been giving a picture of what this looks like in the political realm. After all, this is written by a king, a guy who was at the top of the Ponzi scheme who had everything he had wanted, and he reflects upon that. And so the ways that he talks about the implications of foolishness or folly specifically, typically apply to him as a king, as a ruler, as a leader, a person with authority. And so that's kind of the reflection here. And this is what I would just kind of kind of say is like there are things that we can learn from this even though you may not be the king there's an influence i believe god has given you and what you do with it will either be characterized by wisdom or will be characterized by foolishness you're either a wise person or you're an idiot and to actually contemplate the possibility that you might not be in the category you you once assumed you were in is the beginning of wisdom even if it takes you through a place you don't like so I thank you for the grace you've shown me. I'll need more of it because secondarily, this is a reflection upon wisdom and folly. Now this is where functionally, I, I want to like use this as a teaching moment here. Is this, this is where functionally we really do let the, the Bible have an authority over us, okay? Because this is where I get to the limits of myself, right? If you were to say, hey, teach us about wisdom and foolishness, I have advanced degrees, in foolishness. And I, if it were up to me to simply demonstrate wisdom to you, then we're at a loss. We're in trouble. But thank God that he is not up there and out there and left us with a mystery unanswerable, but instead he has entrusted this word to us. A word, mind you, that at least 200 people in just the last we celebrate 500 years ago were burned alive so that you could have access to this. They were burned because they translated this, this text into a language you and I could understand. Thank God that at this point where I run out of my own wisdom, we begin to reflect on what I would argue is a godly wisdom. And even in this moment, functionally, you don't just sit back and expect wisdom to flow from my mouth. It won't happen. But as we dig into this, I think we find it. So beginning in verse 5, I'm going to give you a few principles. Nine to be specific. Nine of them. Beginning in verse 5, this is the 
verse 5 and 6 and 7 are like the wrap-up of what we saw last week, so we spent some time here, but the, they also serve as a transition for the next set of principles. It says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. That is that, verse 6, folly is set in even in many high places, and then the rich sit in a, in a low place. And now, over and over and over again, he said this. You shouldn't be surprised when the people you, you think are you think are wiser, you think that the people who are smart enough to be in charge would be exempt from foolishness, they're not. Don't be surprised. When the people you elect or the people born into power, whatever form of government you've got, when those people entrusted with your care are corrupt or at least a little bit foolish, you shouldn't be surprised. It happens. It goes all the way to the top. The foolishness at the bottom and the foolishness at the top are the same. Verse 7, such that now in a broken world, things are out of order. He says, I've seen slaves on a horse and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So for this particular culture, people who deserved honor weren't getting it, and the people who didn't deserve honor were getting it. This is real, okay? You don't believe me? When I say the word Kim Kardashian, you all know who I'm talking about, but you probably can't tell me why. You can't tell me why that person's famous. If I said Paris Hilton, right? You'd be like, I know who that is. You can't tell me what that person has done. They're just famous for the sake of being famous. So this happens. Sometimes the press goes to just people for the sake of, I don't know, like just giving honor where it's not deserved. And sometimes, like here's the catch, you can't name me, I would argue, and if you can't come meet me afterward, prove me wrong and I'll apologize, ask your forgiveness and hug you, but you can't name me five of the most recent Nobel Prize winners. You can't. And if you can, by all means, come again, I'll, I owe you an apology, all right? And you can't pull out one from like 100 years ago, right? But you know who Kim Kardashian is. Did you get this? Sometimes the honor goes where it's not deserved, and sometimes the, 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 the absolute, like, anonymous character that is ascribed to people who actually deserve and have achieved something, eh, they die in obscurity. So this is real. So this, this goes to the top, from the top to the bottom. This is, you can see this sometimes. Sometimes good things happen. Sometimes bad things happen. It's hard to determine, even in the political realm. So he transitioned to what I would say are nine principles here, at least nine. He says, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. So one of the first principles I'll give you, and this is what I want to point you toward. If there's a place here where there's a wisdom or folly that stings you, or at least applies to you, mark that down. Make a mental note of that, because at the end of this, we're going to see what that means for us. How do we respond now that we can recognize foolishness and wisdom around us? And if you go nine for nine, and you're just awesome and wise, well, good for you. But here we go. He who digs a pit will fall into it. I want you to consider one of the first principles, always consider the other side of the coin, right? Always weigh the downside. What we find here is that in life, what we can expect is that no matter what you do, even if people are doing good things, they're not exempt from risk. So you see these kinds of pictures, like the first pair of pictures beginning in verse 8 and 9, they concern like the danger and instability of life, specifically for, for Solomon for political life but the decisions that a leader must make. But then the second pair, beginning in verse 10 and 11, we'll talk about in a minute, deal with like the application of wisdom to more specific problems. And so these four verses, you'll see them separated, 8 through 11, 
form kind of a little, a, a miniature little theme, a, li- a little poem, if you will. They're, they're arranged with purpose. Then you'll see the next set again, 12, 13, 14, 15, also kind of fit together. And then the last section in the chapter lumps together after verse 16. So, so you've got a little bit, some of these things have a little bit to do with one another, but some of them not really. So the first thing we consider, always consider the downside. We're meant to see here that even those, it's not, the bad things that happen to people aren't just the ones who plot evil, right? The person who sets a trap might fall into it. However, we don't seem to see like an evil or, or kind of maniacal or even demonic intention. You just hear about a person who digs a pit. His job is, job is to dig a pit. Every day he gets up, he digs pits. That's what he does. Eventually, the thing he does will probably hurt him. A person who does demolition, breaks through walls, right? Tears things down digs through things. Eventually, that person is going to be at risk. That person could be bought or bitten by a poisonous serpent. You see, what we learn here and what we gain wisdom from is that you ought to be careful what you do, whatever you may do, because it might kill you. Either because it's a two-sided coin, as we might say, or as another way we might say it, it's a double-edged sword, or simply because it's inherently risky, Whatever you do can backfire. Be cautious of your work and be cautious of the thing you invest the most into. Because if it requires something of you for success, beware. That thing probably has specific areas that can work against you. So you're good at something. Great. When you elevate that beyond the level of wisdom, that foolishness can lead that thing that you think is so special to deceive you or even to destroy you. You dig a pit, you fall into it. It says that even like the most mundane of things, a person who quarries stones, right? Someone who works with stones ultimately is hurt by them. And he who splits logs is endangered by them. I mean, these are just good, helpful jobs in a society, right? These are the building blocks of a society that this person is doing. But we ought to always beware in wisdom that they can destroy you. I'll apply this to me first, right? So I need in my job to be relatable enough and likable enough so that I can speak some words of truth that you may not like to hear. But if that becomes my only goal, to be relatable and likable, what will happen? I'll be destroyed by ignoring the truth. On the other hand, if I make my my livelihood on speaking the truth firmly, clearly, and as explicitly as possible, you're devoted to that one thing more than anything else, you'll do so at the expense of being relatable, lovable, or likable. What about you? What's the thing that makes you good at your job? What's the thing that makes you, you know, unique? What's the thing that you think, all right, this is what I bring to the table? We take wisdom knowing that that thing has its own dark side. That character trait, that skill, that gift set that you have, in and of itself is neutral. You could use it to glorify God, or you could use it to glorify yourself. You could use it to lead people, others, lead other people into health, lead other people into joy and gladness in Christ, or you could use that same skill set, gift set, and you can manipulate people for your own attention. They're all neutral. 
We, I know what you're thinking. No, well, my, my skill set is uniquely, it's uniquely righteous. My skill set has no possibility for corruption. Well, there you go. Whatever your skill set is made you just so self-righteous that you think you're above God. Everything, everything that you bring to the table. And, and this, is, this, is, this is dangerous territory because we, I, I believe we live in a culture that encourages you to find that thing and then milk it for all it's worth and then find your identity in it such that it's the first thing you say when you introduce yourself to someone. Am I right? Hi, I'm so-and-so. And then the first thing you go is like, who am I? Well, I'm this. Beware. Wisdom is to know that that thing isn't inherently good. It can turn on you. One of my favorite stories of this is the man by the name of Haman and the story of Esther. Find this in the seventh chapter of the book of Esther. A man by the name of Haman, he builds a gallows to kill someone he doesn't like. And lo and behold, they hang him on his own gallows. Flips the script on him. He dies with his own means of destruction. Jeremiah 18 hints at this. So you'll say, well, no, what if my job isn't that dangerous? Well, verse 9 is the answer. Even simple jobs, even jobs that seem like you're just minding your own business, working with your hands, even those jobs can hurt. They have the ability to destroy. There's no getting out of this. Doctors, lawyers, moms, dads, you fill in the blank. All have the ability to harm in very different ways. Now here's the thing, I would love to be able to tell myself, like, no, you're the exception. You know, this won't happen to me. Absolutely won't happen to me. I would love to believe that I'm above it. In fact, I would love to lead you to believe the same, right? You know, bad things are going to happen, but not to you. You're better than that. You're above it. But you know as well as I do, and if you don't know it, you'll learn it soon, is that every single person who's experienced tragedy, they never saw it coming. They assumed that would happen to someone else. They all assumed that, that that's what happens to other people. Remember this, we, sell, we, we, we mourned over this uh, less than a year ago when, when a young man went to a, a water park in Kansas City and lost his life. Had a water park, a place of like, joy and excitement, and it brought the end of his life. In our own state, in the last 24 hours, did you catch this? They had a sleepover in Spearfish, South Dakota, and at least five children between the age of six and nine lost their life. Every single one, they think, not me. I'm above that. But friend, that's foolish. You're an idiot. And when this happens... It will be destructive, and wisdom is to contemplate the danger at every circumstance. Not, not to where we walk in fear, but we know that ultimately God is in control, and we are not. And even awful things can happen. And that, even just that sobering reality, while it might fill you with dread, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of godly wisdom. The beginning of godly humility that draws God's presence near. Next we see in verse 10, have the right tool for the job and have it ready. So this is, depending on who I'm talking to, this, this will just kind of land on different people in different ways. It says, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Now, this is tricky because we're not necessarily talking about evil or things that are necessarily sinful. 
right? So if you, if you take the wrong tool for the job, you, you might not necessarily be sinning, okay? So I, I remember when I was a child, right, uh, we, you know, we just, whereas at my friend's house, and they were like, let's build a hole to China. I don't know, have you ever done this? Maybe you're smarter than I am. We're going to build a hole to China. What do we need? Well, we've got some shovels. Not only that, we've got some flat-edged shovels. Let's do that. Why not? And we started in the backyard to dig a hole to China. Okay? Again, I don't think that's sinful. But it's foolish. At least if you actually expect anything good to happen. So here's what we get. We gain wisdom. We think like, do I have the right equipment? Am I ready to go? You see, people who get in a hurry don't care about maintaining the things that are important to them. People, and this is really tricky because we live in a current society where it's always cheaper to buy a new one than it is to fix the old one. Have you seen this? Pick this, especially in like consumer electronics or consumer products that go in the home. It's cheaper for us to manufacture a hundred of those things in China than it is to pay one American to fix a broken one. You seen this? And this, this has deeply infiltrated our, our understanding of things. And we use things to get the job done, but if not, we'll just kind of skip by. What we find here is that to not do so is foolish. And wisdom will actually bring a great, we saw this in chapter 4, a greater return on investment. Foolishness thinks, eh, this is good enough. Now be careful. I know I just kind of pushed at some of you who are incredibly OCD, and you're excited right now about all the ways that you can take care of things. Good? Okay, good. Good for you. However, what, what I think we'll land on is that like, if, if this hits you on that other side, if you, if you find yourself like, I don't know, is, it, is there a list? If, if I'm talking to me and just letting you kind of hear, is there a list of projects that are undone? Like, is there a, a list of things? Like, I don't know, just when's the last time you took care of your car? Oh, I don't know, let's maybe not put everyone in danger. When's the last time you checked the health of your brakes? When's the last time you changed the oil? Do you even know what that is? All right, well, so, so foolishness would be to not know those things. And there's a couple of people in the room right now who perked up when I said that you should take care of these things, and they should be your best friends because they're good at this. And it would be foolishness to ignore them. We find here that in the end, wisdom is evident in the way that we use things around us and we have them ready. We find that the lack of preparedness, the lack of having the things you need, are probably not due to the excuse you currently are blaming. It might be due to foolishness. Verse 11, we get to the next one. It says, simply implies, act before it's too late. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So, this is, it paints this kind of, this is a poetic language, right? Picture a, I mean, I don't know how to picture this, we're like, picture a snake charmer, right? Someone who has a poisonous snake and, and they have, and they're playing beautiful music, okay? Don't let the beautiful music fool you. Don't let the presentation, don't let the show fool you. If that person gets bit, no music will help them, right? No show is going to get them by. And so there's a sense in which if you're you're going to do something, you had better have your ducks in a row to begin with. And you want to do so before it's too late. So this is a challenge to you and I who maybe are procrastinators. I'm not talking about the kind of procrastination that comes from just knowing that something difficult is coming. I'm trying to, to paint a picture here. It's like if you put off decisions to the point where putting it off made the decision for you, 
careful. You know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, I don't know what to do. The deadline's coming. And then you just do nothing. That is a form of a decision. It's a foolish form of a decision, but that is a decision. And that decision will leave you in a spot where you will die. It will kill you. At the very least, it will take what you intended to do, maybe even charming snakes, and it will be the cause of your downfall. So you act. We constantly, we're the kind of people, if we really believe that in a broken world there is, there is meaninglessness, but, but we can find godly wisdom and point toward that kind of godly wisdom, we reflect on the ways in which we are currently preparing for things. Do you find yourself being proactive and, and anticipating things? Or do you find yourself always being reactive and always being caught off guard? Friend, you're foolish. There's a wisdom to be gained here. There may be something to be repented of. So then the new section starts. And this, like the most important thing for godly counsel and wisdom, at least for the king in this particular case, probably for Solomon, are his words. There is a power in those words. And verbosity arises from too high a regard of our own opinions. So beginning in verse 12, it says, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Very simply, this is a principle we see in the book of Proverbs all the way even to the wisdom in the New Testament. We watch our mouth. We watch our words our words have power. It should at least cause us to reflect on the ways in which we use words. How do you use words? To make people laugh? To harm people? To entertain? Do you use your words to get your way? Do you use your words to manipulate? Are your words direct and clear and truthful? Or are they cagey and deceptive and manipulative? Do you ask questions that are not really questions? Like, hey, do you want to take out the trash? Right? No, I don't want to take out the trash. Just do it. I, I, this is what this looks like in my household. Instead of speaking with words that are truthful and careful, we just kind of manipulate, hey, do we want to do this? No, that's not. That. And do you use those kinds of questions to get what you want? Or do, are, you, are your words pointed and honest? Do you say what you mean? Or do you throw temper tantrums until someone finally asks you, are you okay? Because we watch our mouths. Whether it's the foolishness that can be visible when someone says something they ought not say. This is for me. That category applies to me. I will regularly have to repent of things that I said that I shouldn't have said. But the same also applies to the rest of you who are on the other end of the spectrum. And you will regularly have to repent of things that you didn't say. You know you should have. And the same thing is true. Watch your mouth. Watch your words. Do you use your words to get your way or do you use your silence even to get your way? We gain wisdom and when we look at how we use our words. Verse 15 kind of picks up on this. So, so verse 13 leads up to this. The, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words though no man knows what it is to be or who can tell him what will be after him. And so we find, at least in 13, 12, 13, and 14, as we watch our mouths, I just ask a question. How often do you just say, I don't know? How often do you just say, 
you know, I'm not sure. Or are you the kind of person that like starts talking and hopes you'll have an idea by the end of the sentence? Been there? Beware of anyone then when they start a, when they start a conversation with the words, actually, like, be careful. This, this, is you, this, this might be you, okay? You probably, instead of saying, actually, it's this, I remember this, okay, you're, you're probably, you might be misdirecting. I could be wrong. Maybe you really know. Maybe you're the expert. But you can't be an expert about everything. Are there at least certain times where you go, you know, I have no clue. I have no idea. Or I knew, but I've forgotten. This is tricky for us because we are currently what I would call Google omniscient. Uh, Google has currently replaced our long-term memory. And so in the place where we should just say, I don't know, and it's not that important. Let's talk about something that is. We do what? Well, somebody Google it. So how often do you just simply say, you know what, I don't know? Because if it's not often, then you might just be multiplying words. Do you have convictions about opinions that you're uninformed about? I saw this, one of my favorite places to, to see this one uh, was when I was in, uh, when I was in seminary, uh, we had what were called precepts. We had these classes that would, we would meet um, at the end of the week and discuss, like a lab, but for s- topics that were about books, right? And so, uh, so we would have like these, these precepts. We would get together and we would discuss things. And I had a professor who put it this way. I, I mean, I love this. And he said, he said, I'm going to assume that if you haven't done the reading you're not going to insult the people in this room and lower the level of the conversation by assuming that you have. I love that. Of course, because the day he said it, I was me, right? And I was trying to think of, what are the ways that I can sound like I know what I'm talking about? You know, you're like flipping through. Yeah, I'll just say that. That sounds like, you ever done this? Like, what are the ways I can sound like I know what I'm talking about? Friend, that's foolish. Don't be that. Sometimes the best thing to say is, you know what, I don't know. Sometimes it's best, it's best to be guilty of foolishness so that we're not guilty of sin. Don't trade your foolishness and your mistakes for sin. You know what this looks like? When you've made a mistake and instead of just admitting it, oh, this is a gray mistake. We're not talking about you've sinned, but then what do you do? You lie to cover it up. Look, there's no penalty. There's no penalty for mistakes or foolishness. There's consequences. But friend, there's a penalty for sin. That sin is rebellion against God. So here you go. Like, don't trade your foolishness, which, is, can, which can be forgivable, for sin. Just say, I don't know. I didn't do it. I made a mistake. Or you can be a fool and just try to misdirect. Go ahead. Try to talk your way out of it. But ultimately, what we find is that a person, evidently in verse 14, will pretend like they're wise even though they don't know what they're talking about. And he concludes this little section on how a fool talks and lives and summarizes him in verse 15. The toil, the work, or labor of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. So here's the thing. Have a plan. Know where you're going. As we kind of reverse engineer it, this is the way I would say it's like, if you, see, if you see yourself doing things on a regular basis that you don't enjoy, it might be because you don't really know where you're going. The language here is like, this guy, he's going somewhere, but he really doesn't know how to get there. I mean, it's like, where are you going? Well, I'm going to the city. Well, what city? I have no idea. How long have you been going to the city? Oh, I don't know. You know, I could look at a map, but... I think I'm just going to go until I get tired. And there's kind of this picture in which you're like, so, you know, 
you assume that if you keep doing this, you'll get where you're going, and you won't. You might hit the water, or you might hit the mountains. You may not actually hit the city. You may miss the town altogether. And I would argue many people live their lives this way, and the result is a deep, deep, deep weariness. Where are you going? I don't know. Well, how do you know when you actually get there? I don't know. And the result is when you ask, hey, how is that going for you? You answer like verse 15. I am so weary. I am so weary. So again, maybe, maybe if you're not a, a visionary thinker, maybe you're not good at seeing the consequences of things and looking into the future. All right, good. Ask for help. There are people around you that can help in this. Otherwise, expect the work you are currently doing because you don't really know where you want to go. You're not confident who God has called you to be. Then you won't know what to do. And if you don't know what to do or where to go, expect exhaustion. Expect to spend a lot of energy in things that don't satisfy. A wise man knows where he's going, such that the person will ask directions if they need to. In fact, the wise person will surround himself with people who can help that, help that wise man get to where he's going. Here's what this looks like to me. In my own life, um, when I was weary and, and lacked direction, this may not apply to you, but it might, uh, what I did in these moments of weariness is I pushed out all the people who were happier and more successful than me. I distanced myself from all the people and I found ways to like bring them down. Well, they're so confident, you know, as if, as if, as if that's a bad thing. Like, oh, you should be lost and weary and stumble around like me. And I was like, oh, they're so, they're so self-assured. They, they act like they know where they're going. And I distanced myself from them. And they could have been a source of great counsel and great encouragement and great direction. But my own weariness, my own foolishness made me think, well, I just can't stand them. They're just so confident. They're so sure of where they're going. And I had a million reasons to explain why that was so unfair. Well, they just got lucky. Maybe. But what I think you might find that I found is that that frustration I had to push those people who were had more joy and more success than I had to push them out of my life was actually their own lives convicting me of my own lack of direction. What I didn't really like was not that they were so successful, but that their success pointed to my own weariness and my own foolishness. We move on into verse 16. It says, woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. Again, see the political nature to some of these things. When your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. And he might be referencing himself. You can go back to, to First and Second Kings when, uh, when we see the picture of Solomon uh, becoming the king and he, and he desires greatly to be wise, but he, before the Lord, the Lord grants him this wish and he's like, he's like Solomon, I'll bless you. What, what do you want? And he says, I am but a child. I don't know how to go in or come out. I don't know how to live grant me wisdom. And so he may be referencing what it looks like to be childish or immature. But either way, it seems to be pointing to the fact that like, if the people in charge are immature, they'll look like this. They'll feast in the morning. This is what this means. Celebrate wisely. Celebrate after you win. Throw a party after it's over. Like history has a long running list of people who prematurely celebrated thought, 
We're there! And then they failed. And then there was a great destruction and they paid for it. So here's what we Wisdom is to celebrate rightly. Wait until all, all the cards are on the table before you, before, as we would say, like you count your chickens, right? Like, wisdom would be to wait and celebrate rightly. Somebody who feasts in the morning, right? Somebody who, the picture here, you're like, well, what do you mean by feasting? Well, it says, happier you'll land when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So here's the thing. If you've ever said it's five o'clock somewhere and like you didn't mean that as a joke, beware. This is speaking to you. And the influence God has now entrusted to you, you are shirking and probably harming others with it. Maybe you're not a king, but you probably are a leader. You probably have more influence than you realize. And again, if you ever thought like, hey, I mean, it's five o'clock somewhere, and you use that as an excuse for foolishness at the wrong time, I want to push back. Beware. This might be speaking to you. This might be speaking to you. That's a funny joke until it's not a joke. Because it says here, woe to you, woe to you people who are depending on people who are like feasting and celebrating, drinking at the improper time. In verse 18, we see the next principle. It says, evidently, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. So as best as I can say this, the best way I know how, a prophet of our age would say it this way, get her done, right? Or, I mean, the best I know how is like, do it! <laughs> Just do it! The thing you know you're supposed to do, do it. Because the current sorrow you're living in is the result of you not doing it. And here's the hard part. This is, this is what hurts. Did you, see, did you see that? The sloth and the indolence has visible evidence. The roof, the roof sinks in and the house leaks. Can I warn you, for those of you marked by laziness and procrastination, did you know that every single person around you can tell? You think you're getting away with it. You think it's a secret. But friend, in the most proverbial way I could say it, your roof is sagging. Your house is falling in and it's leaking. Your laziness is painfully obvious to the people around you. I know you don't see it, but you probably haven't seen the single digits on an alarm clock in a long time either. You probably are indolent. You don't see it. Friend, everyone else does. There's evidence of this. And the person who considers this will gain wisdom from it. They will gain wisdom from the counsel of a person who might not be as slothful as we are. Two more to go here. It says, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. So here's, here's what we learn. Be wise with money. Uh, side note here, did you catch that? It says like uh, bread, he's, he's not speaking of literal bread, like bread makes you laugh, right? It's not like, ha ha, that's, that's not what he's saying. It's like, He's, he's saying bread, remember, as a symbol for feasting, for enjoying this together. And then wine makes the heart glad. So I, I don't know if you've been keeping account, but this has come up just about like every other chapter, hasn't it? He says wisdom is to see what's around you and celebrate it. 
You know that death is coming. You don't see it coming. The wise and the fool all end up in the grave. So therefore, enjoy with gratitude the things around you. Good food, good drink, good company. We're preparing for eternity. This is what it will be like at the the wedding supper of the Lamb, according to the book of Revelation. So we start celebrating that now. But it says that, and adds a little caveat to it, money answers everything. And this is a a place of, I hope, like a place where we can kind of get some biblical wisdom. Money, like anything else in the Bible, is neutral. It's incredibly neutral. It's also incredibly precise because it's calculated and measured. You don't wonder how much a bill is worth, right? You don't go and give someone a bill and go, I wonder what, it's precise. And so if you want to know what you value, look at your money. If you want to know who is Lord of your life, if you want to know what really drives things, not what you say here on a Sunday is important to you, but like functionally, money is neutral. Now the New Testament tells us that the love of money causes lots of evil. If you start to love money rather than seeing it as a very neutral and very precise way of ascribing value, if it's more than that to you, evil ensues. But in the meantime, the best way to render verse 19 is like, like feasting brings joy, right? Bread and think of this like think of laughing around the table with people you love and wine gladdens life, right? Think again of a person who enjoys wine in a way that they ought to, person who starts drinking the first thing in the morning, you're not going to accomplish much that day. But a person who celebrates regularly and rightly has a glad life. And money is the way you get those things. So friend, if we do want to celebrate, like one day we're going to celebrate an eternity with, with the feast we can, the drink that we can, and the company that we love, we're going to have to be wiser with money. You're going to have to be wiser. This may mean, okay, so like six nights this week, you may need to eat beans and rice, okay? So that the seventh day, you can like enjoy with gladness the people God's put around you. This means we got to be smart with the way we budget, the way we do things. Money makes this happen. Now, we've already seen in the book of Ecclesiastes, money won't satisfy, right? This guy had more money than he knew what to do with, literally, and, and it didn't give him happiness, But the money that he did have was able to invest in things that pointed to a godly kind of wisdom. So here's what I would say. Like, if you find yourself eating out because you're just lazy and slothful, you're like, I don't know what to eat. I guess we'll eat out. Okay, that's that's a foolishness. But if you find yourself thinking like, man, I want to save this little bit of money because I want to have those people over for dinner. You're doing something that is in the very heart of God in the very heart of God, and that is what we will celebrate one day at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Acts 2.42, the marks of a biblical church. Do you remember them? The four things, the prayers, the apostles' teaching, right? The fellowship and the breaking of bread. So here's what I would say. If you just eat, if eating is your occasion for feasting, if food is the occasion for feasting, you're a glutton. But if people and occasions and glorifying God are the reason for feasting, you're tapping into a godly wisdom. Here's the last one. We'll end on this. It says, respect and honor authority. Verse 20 says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, and some winged creature tell the matter. We have a phrase like this, right? A little bird told me. See this? This little aphorism here? And here's what this means. So, okay, maybe you're good, 
Maybe you're good at not bad-mouthing people in authority. Okay. Maybe you're bad at it. Maybe this is for you directly. Maybe you regularly undermine people who God has placed in authority over you. If you think authority in and of itself is bad, here's what I want to push against you. Authority is a gift of God. It's the one thing he grants to the world and he trusts people too. So in 2 Samuel, the last words of King David were this. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. If all authority is bad for you, friend, I want, I want to introduce you to the God of the Bible who uses his authority to bless and to redeem, not to oppress and crush. And so if anyone who's in authority over you is immediately in, on, a, on a dark list for you, friend, there's an issue there. You You've got this. Maybe you don't say it to their face, but maybe, maybe did you catch the end? Not even in your bedroom. Maybe you're good at holding your tongue, but later muttering, man, I should have said that. Friend, in the end, that matter will cost you. So what do we do with these principles? Here's what I would tell you. I think that the title of this book gives us the reason for this kind of wisdom. The book Ecclesiastes, right? Those of you who are with us through the series through Acts, the word ekklesia is the Greek word for the word church, the called out ones. Ek, out, and kaleo, called. So we are called out for God's purpose. If there's a moment in some of these things that stings you and maybe convicts you, I want to give you the answer. It's in the title of the book. It's the ekklesia. It's the community of God's people. It's the place where you can say, will you help me? I'm incredibly unwise in this area. I've been incredibly foolish over here. Will you help me? And we're the people who see these principles, all nine of them, and we with joy can speak not a word of condemnation, but a word of good news. It's really good news. Have you considered Jesus? He saw and knew the cost of what he was doing. He knew the other side of the coin, and he went anyway. He knew that if he would perform miracles and claim to be God on earth, they would kill him for it, and he did it anyway. He had the tools ready. He acted before it was too late. In fact, we find that before even the, the foundation of the world was laid, he already knew what he was going to do because we knew he had a plan. He knew where he was going. He set his sight on the cross and knew that you would be the thing he would purchase for the glory of God. He didn't sit back in laziness and indolence. He did it. He did it so that at the end, one of his last words were, not I'm going to get to it tomorrow, but it is finished. Such that now we know the wealth of the world he was wise with. He emptied it for the sake of redeeming you and me and to redeem for us what right and true and godly authority looks like. Friend, do you have people around you that speak to your foolishness with these words? If not, it might not be a coincidence that God's put you in this room. Let's pray together. Let's pray that God would begin to make this a reality, that this kind of wisdom that points to him would become visible in us. God, I thank you for your goodness, and I thank you for your own mercy. God, I feel the weight of my own foolishness, even as I speak some of these words. Um, 
I feel the weight of my own, my own stupidity. I ask as humbly as possible that you would begin to create in us a group of people that readily looks to the wisdom that was made flesh for us in Jesus. And we see it in such a way that we're willing to admit our own foolishness. God, if there's a way that maybe has been exposed in one of us that's foolish, if there's something that as we dig through these principles of Solomon, we think, man, that's me. That's me. Would you, would you begin to give us the courage to confess it, to repent of it, to maybe even ask for the counsel around us, to maybe even consider the ways that you might have already facilitated the kind of wisdom to be spoken into our lives? Forgive us for the ways in pride we, we keep our own foolishness a secret and allow us in joy and confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ to confess them and experience the healing and the welcome that comes from a perfect and wise God. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.